Thank you, and good morning again. We are continuing in Colossians this morning, Colossians chapter 2, and as you turn there, we can begin with a question. It's a question that's kind of timeless. I think Paul could ask it of the church then, and we certainly could ask it of ourselves now, which is, is the church influencing the world, or is the world influencing the church? Those are, that's that constant battle. Is the Word of God, through the faithful discipleship of Jesus Christ, influencing the world around us, or is culture in the world actually having its influence on those who claim to walk with Christ? Now, we get a little evidence of this in surveys. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that Ligonier had released its State of Theology report, and what that does is it poses statements to people, and then they either agree or they disagree, kind of on a sliding scale. Now, I'm only going to do three, but I'm going to focus on the responses of those who are evangelical Christians, right? So they're in a category where they have identified themselves as evangelicals, and that would include people like us, right? So this is relevant to us. So let's listen to a couple of them. The Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. That's the statement. It doesn't say that the Bible says something different. It just says God's inerrant, infallible, authoritative word no longer applies to us in our cultural moment. In 2020, only 11% said that was true. But by 2022, a third of evangelicals agreed with that statement that the Bible no longer applies on this issue. So you have to ask yourself, well, what changed in that two-year period? Did the Bible change? No. Did God change? No, he, if he changed, he wouldn't be God. God is unchanging. The world changed, and the influences on the church have changed. How about this statement? Religious belief is just a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. It's just a matter of opinion. In 2022, almost 40% of evangelical Christians say that is true. And I don't even know how you base faith on anything when you think that it's all just a matter of opinions. But you see how this guides us, this relative concept of truth. And yet God says, my word is truth. Sanctify them in truth. And finally, and this is the most disturbing of all, the statement is, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Now you would expect the answer to that to be zero. Zero percent of Christians or people who profess to be Christian would say that that is true because if Jesus is not God, he's not a good teacher. Let's be real about that. Jesus claimed to be God. He said, I and the Father are one. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except for me. It is all throughout Scripture. If Jesus is not God, he's not a good teacher. He's just a liar or an insane man, right? And yet... In 2020, even, a third of those who say they are Christians agree with that statement, that Jesus is not God. And by 2022, just two years later, almost 45% of those who identify as evangelical Christians say that Jesus was not God. Now, I think you can see the problem. I don't think that takes a great deal of explanation. Over 40% of people say that they're saved and they're going to heaven, and they think that is based on their belief in a really good man. Jesus said no one is good except for God. We can't be saved by a good man. The wages of sin are death, and we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And So only God can save you. Only God can save you from God's perfect justice and holiness. 
Only God's Son in His sinless perfection can be your substitute. It is fundamental to our faith. And the problem, of course, is that the world is telling us constantly something different. And when you stop believing in God, as rightfully and truthfully laid out for us in His Word, it's not that you stop believing in everything. It's as G.K. Chesterton said, you will believe in anything. You have no standard on which to ground yourself. So the world and its secular ideologies, its philosophies, its lack of any moral standards except for man seem actually to be influencing the church more than we are influencing the world. And so as we turn to our text this morning, I hope you will see that this, this warning and this command that Paul is giving us is very relevant to our moment in history, just as it has been for Christians throughout the last two millennia. Colossians 2, 8 through 10 is our text this morning. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the full fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. This is the Word of God given to His people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Oh Lord, we pray that Your Spirit would be present with us this morning, that it would work in our hearts and minds, that it would open our eyes, that it would cause us to think, that it would cause us to be ever conformed to the image of your Son. Lord, we're grateful for him. We pray that he would be honored this morning as we reflect upon his word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we get going, it's probably helpful to recall something that Paul has written a little bit earlier. He's been setting the stage now for what's coming. And he has laid out the duty of every Christian and for the church as a whole. In Colossians 1.28, he says, Him we proclaim, right? We have no other message to take to the world. We have nothing to talk about of worth except for Jesus Christ. And we are to tell all people of Jesus Christ. And he tells us that we're to do this both by warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And that sums up, really, the vision and the mission of the church. We say it here at, at Elgin First Baptist as be disciples to make disciples. And really, we're saying the same thing, just in a very simple way. And from the verse that we see today, all the way through the middle, really, of chapter 4, we get just this series of warnings and commands. Warnings and commands and instructions and it applies to all of us. The passage begins, see to it, right? See to it. It's not, it's not a passive thing. It's a command to take action, to be on guard, because the passive Christian is easy prey. Now this, if you just scan through the text, you'll see that it just is a repetitive series of these. It's see to it. Let no one set your minds. Put to death. Do not Put on. There's every one of these starts with some action that we are called to take as Christians. The list just goes on and on all the way through chapter 4. And sometimes these are hard for us because they're not stories and they're not things that we can feel warm and fuzzy about all the time, but they are actions we are called to take. And they're always hinging on a warning together with the promise that is given us. And the remainder of chapter 2 that we're in now, 
is really anchored on three warnings that we are called to observe. And then they are each balanced with the positive promise that is to be found in Christ. And because just like the church today, we know that the occasion for this letter is that the Colossian Christians were faced with kind of a bombardment of false teaching. And in their case, it was a mix of traditional Judaism. So you had tradition supporting it, combined with Greek philosophy and pagan rituals that had come into the church, and then on top of that, this Gnosticism, this high spirituality and a view of the spiritual world at war with the material world, which is part of why they struggled to see Christ as both God and man. Now, the warnings are kind of laid out in three places. Each one is a call to action. In verse 8, which is where we're at now, Paul warns Christians about being kidnapped. That's really what this is getting at, being taken captive by ideas and human traditions. And then he gets to verse 16, and we're warned not to allow anyone to condemn us outside of Scripture. And in verse 18, we're told not to allow anyone to disqualify our faith, right? Make us feel unsaved by turning towards extra-biblical ideas. Warnings and commands, they go hand in hand all throughout this, but they're not fun. These are not the fun parts of Scripture. All of us actually prefer to just get a message about God loves us where we're at. With no call to action, we're accepted by Him through Christ, and that is true. But we only know that truth by turning to Scripture. And Hebrews 4.12 tells us this, the Word of God is living and active. It is living and active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's exciting. We often turn to that. The Word of God is living and active, and it's a mirror through which we see ourselves, and God speaks to us through His Word, and that is a beautiful thing. But if you read that carefully... It doesn't sound pleasant, does it? It sounds rather painful. The Word of God is intrusive into our lives. It shapes us. It conforms us to the will of God. Nothing's hidden. We're told that we stand naked before Christ. Nothing's off limits to the sanctifying work of conforming us to the one that we say we follow in love. And so we're always called to come humbly to the Word of God. Always understanding that both our own reading and the preaching of the Word, it's not an effort to make God acceptable to people. That's not what we're doing when we go and evangelize. Not trying to make God acceptable to people and to sugarcoat sin and give false promises of salvation. The objective is always to make sinful people acceptable to a holy God. And that is only accomplished through Jesus Christ and what He has done. And that's the message that we take. And so as we get these warnings and instructions, and they're going to get harder, we actually start with an easy one today, but if you've read ahead and you see chapter 3, they get really hard, and they touch on things that are going to make us a little uncomfortable. They're hard to hear. They're hard to hear, especially if you're active and the Holy Spirit is convicting you and drawing you ever closer to Christ in prayer and obedience and repentance and faith. Because they call us to do things that we don't naturally want to do. Sometimes forgiving someone when we really want to make them pay. We want to hold on to something. Other times, it's just that our obedience to Christ puts us at odds with family and friends and associates and colleagues and the culture at large. They're just not 
fun to always receive. We, the warnings, the commands. But we are called to receive them. And we're called to apply them to our lives. Because we're constantly called to grow in our faith and our knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're called to proper worship and to place Christ first in all things. They're not fun to receive. They're not fun to preach sometimes. It's not fun. You know somebody's going to be offended. But the Holy Spirit tells us exactly what a preacher is supposed to do and exactly what you as a congregation should be demanding from your preacher. Right? It says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, here it comes, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Encourage, soothe, and affirm everyone, leaving only smiles when it comes to the holiness of God. I think you know that's not what Scripture says, right? But that is what would be more fun than giving warnings. It doesn't end that way. It calls for us to preach the word. To be ready in season and out of season to reprove and rebuke and exhort with complete patience in teaching. And that is not comfortable. It's not comfortable to you, I'm sure, when you go out and evangelize the world. But it's not always comfortable up here, right? You don't find that phrase in any book about how to win friends. Go out and reprove and rebuke them and bring them the word of God and encourage them to obedience. So I get it. It's not always easy to listen to. But think about the Apostle Paul and what he is modeling for us here. His love for Christ, his love for the people who follow Christ compels him to warn and teach when he has no relationship with them. He doesn't know them. He is sitting in jail for preaching the word of God. And letter after letter, this is not unique to Colossians, he reaches out and in his deep passion for Christ, he calls them to obedience and he warns them and encourages them. The motivation behind all of the warnings. It's always the same, and it should be the same for us. To love God, to love His church, to love every single person around you, to love them enough to make sure that they cannot claim ignorance of what Christ commands in His Word, but they will be clear on what He has called them to do. It is to force, in a way, the choice in their mind constantly of who is it that you will follow? Who is it that you're following today? And it is, of course, to prepare all the saints for that day when we were enter Christ's kingdom, calling everyone to turn from sin and follow Christ with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, or in the words of Paul, to present everyone mature in Christ. If you read the Gospels, you will see that Jesus never shied away from preaching the hard truths to people, and it resulted in many rejecting him then just as they do today, over and over. John chapter 6, you could turn there and see that most of them left him. The book of Acts testifies to the apostles filled with the Holy Spirit who spoke truth and they warned and they taught and they did so to fulfill the great commission, which is to go and make disciples, right? It's not to go and make converts, it's to go and make disciples and it tells us what that entails, baptizing them and teaching them to observe or obey all that Christ commanded. And then you have the apostle Paul. He lived for Jesus. They suffered for Jesus. And he didn't hold back on his warnings because he knew that the matter at hand was eternal. It was life and death, not just now, but for all eternity. And so he begins this morning with the first of the warnings, and it's actually an easy one. I think it's an easy one for us to swallow. 
He's writing to the church from a prison cell. And we'll cover it under three headings. The warning itself, the supremacy of Christ, and the wholeness that we have as believers in Christ Jesus. First, the warning. See to it, he says in verse 8, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See to it. It's our burden. You must do this actively. It makes me think back to the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus, going to the cross, told his disciples to watch and pray, right? It's active. You must guard your soul. Peter said, be on guard, for the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. And that should concern us because Jesus warned that the devil comes only to to steal and kill and destroy. Satan hates God. He hates the image bearers of God. And thus anything that will keep people away from proper worship of Jesus Christ and submitting to his word, that's the goal. Religion, per se, is not under attack. Who cares? That's actually a good thing. Not for us, though. Because only those who follow Jesus and hold to his word create the problem. It's to pull people away from that. And whether we want to accept it or not, whether we're numb to this because of our culture or not, We're actually born into a war in this life. And it is a war for souls. It is a war for eternal souls. And we fight it as a war against sin. It's ultimately fought by everyone against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And how we wage this war is put for us simply in Ephesians 6. Right? We take upon the whole armor of God. And that entails truth and holiness and the gospel and faith and salvation. Most importantly, the sword of the Holy Spirit, which is the Word of God, the Bible. So how do you deceive one then away from that, into terminal error, eternal error? Well, you take their foundation away. Pull the foundation out from a building and it will crumble. So you attack the Word of God and you replace it with meaningless philosophies and ideologies. You immerse people, and we see this at an early age through education and through media, and you lure them away from church by entertaining them to death and providing alternatives, hobbies, sports, whatever it is to keep them away from Christ. And then, most importantly, you weaken the pulpit of the church. You shift to pragmatism. That's doing what works to bring people in, right? Tell them what they want to hear. Make them feel good. Stay away from the Word of God. It's too convicting. But you must return to the Word. And there we have a problem. Because in 2020, Barna reported, and I think it's only gotten worse now, that 61% of those who claim to be evangelicals do not read the Bible. They won't turn to the Bible. And that creates a problem. You see, if you look at Ephesians 6 and you see what it is that we are to do, you'll quickly realize that if you undermine Scripture, you end up with people who fall prey to any type of lie. They're easy to control, they're easy to manipulate, they're unwilling to suffer for Christ, they ultimately become slaves of every tiny pleasure, always eager for the next fix. And that was the worry in Colossae, and it's relevant to our culture. And what Paul is doing here, and he will continue throughout chapter 2 to do, is to point out that error and false teaching is no small thing. It's not a small thing. We can't go someplace or choose to listen to things and say, well, it's 80% of the way there and 20% false, and I'll just jettison that stuff. 
we cannot and should not ever make light of it. A teacher or a preacher who is speaking untruth and not biblical should be corrected or should be stepped down. And the Bible gives you a mechanism for doing this. It tells us how to do this. But we cannot, we should not be willing to sit under false teaching ever. Not on our TV, not on our phones, certainly not in church. Jesus warned, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. See, they don't advertise their error. They don't advertise deception. They appear righteous. They appear religious. That's why we'll listen. They're spiritual. They're sincere. But they will tear you apart spiritually. That's the picture given here of a hungry wolf tearing apart a sheep. How does it happen? How was it happening in Colossae? Well, they are people who come claiming to have great knowledge. And seeming to demonstrate that. They have a deeper knowledge of the divine mysteries than anybody else can have. And they can share that with you. And more spiritual wisdom than their congregations. It doesn't come through people who come and say, I deny it all. Or who are unreligious. It comes from those who are religious. And that's why we get the warning in 2 Corinthians that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It goes on and it says, so it's no surprise that his servant, if his... It is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. That's what lures us in. We have this natural desire to move towards something that is of greater spiritual importance or is works-based. Because despite us saying that we, we want to believe that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we also want something to do. We want to contribute to that. And that is what various cults and various religious systems work off of and draw people in. And yet we know that the gospel message is so simple. It's not always so easy to live it, but it's so simple. Repent and believe and follow Jesus Christ as Lord and you have eternal life, period. That's it. But every other false system says there's more. You can get more. You can be more spiritual. You can earn your way in. It happens in the occult. That's quite easy to point to. You have the Jehovah's Witnesses. They teach that Jesus was a created being. And the reason they knock on your door is because they are taught that you must work your way in. And there are very few spots. And they've got to work their way into that number and they never know if they get there. You can shift to the cult of Mormonism who teach a doctrine that is summed up in one of their famous quotes. As man now is, God once was. As God now is, man may be. You have to stew on that one for a while to see what it means, but they actually explain it on their website. God was just a man, just like you or a woman, but he's just a man, and he did enough good things in his life that he became a God, and he had many celestial wives and had many celestial children, including Jesus and Lucifer, Satan. And if you will become a slave to the system, and do the right amount of works. Go on your missions. Do these things. You will receive the promise that Satan gave to Eve in the garden in Genesis 3.5. You too can be like God. That's the promise. Now, you don't have to stray, though, into the occult to see this. We can wander off into myths in the church, right? There are two areas that we frequently dabble in. You can stray off into legalism, right? thinking that your salvation is dependent on all of these things that you do. You must wear the right clothes. Put the right things on. Don't put these other things on. And All of that is somehow tied to your salvation. 
That would be legalism. But then there's the flip side, which is antinomianism, which I realize is a big word. Namos is law in Greek. Anti makes sense, right? Against law. Antinomianism. That is where you think, well, we are saved by God's grace. He'll just keep pouring it out on us, and we can just go live like pagans with the rest of the world. And that doesn't reflect a saved heart either. Paul addresses that in Romans 6. There are many, many errors, and yet there is but one truth. Not an opinion. It is true. Salvation, as I said, it's not a hard concept to grasp. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, not by works. It's a gift of God so that no one may boast or brag or say, I earned my way in. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that in crystal clear terms. But it is always easy to sort of slip things in and start leading people astray. And so Paul warns against philosophy. And we think in our modern terms that we we have this tight definition of what philosophy is. That's not what it meant in the first century. It's just the love and pursuit of wisdom. And one historian put it this way. I think this explains it for us. Everything that had to do with theories about God and the world and the meaning of human life was called philosophy at that time. You see Josephus referring to the different Jewish sects, Pharisees, Sadducees, the Essenes, as philosophies, right? It is a broad, broad concept. And Paul narrows it in a little bit more by warning about philosophy and empty deceit, right? So what he's pointing to is things that are ultimately useless ideas. They're absent of any moral or spiritual value. They sound really smart to us. They kind of sound worldly good. We can do good things, but they're devoid of wisdom that is dependent on Christ. And it sounds good. And it deceives people who are seeking something more spiritual. But ultimately, no matter who teaches it, whoever says it, whoever writes it, if it's contrary to the Word of God, if it is not grounded in Christ, in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, it is nothing but an illusion. It's empty. We see this today. Teach a generation, atheistic evolution, and what do you end up with? You end up with a society that is depressed, that is anxious, that is consumed with materialism, that is absolutely possessed with the pursuit of various sexual deviancies, who has a complete identity crisis, not even being able to determine their own gender. And then it adds to this pursuit that we see all around us of anything to add a moment of pleasure, just a moment of pleasure or meaning to an otherwise meaningless life for somebody who has no purpose. And it does not take Christians to point this out, by the way. You actually don't need the Bible to point this out. There is an entire industry of psychology and self-help media that has grown up feeding on this wasteland of philosophies and secularist ideologies that are devoid of meaning and provide a person with absolutely no eternal hope. That's the world. That's what Paul is warning against. But we are also warned here against human tradition. And here we kind of have to take a little bit of a step back to understand this because tradition is not automatically to be discarded. There are many, many good traditions, especially within the church, that lead us to a faithful walk with Christ and build disciples, and grow our families. But tradition, tradition alone can never be our primary means of authenticating our biblical faithfulness. The Bible does that, not the tradition itself. It doesn't 
automatically protect us from error because they change over time. And the false teachers in Colossae were doing something quite clever. They were mixing in historic Mosaic law, Judaism, with these new ideas, and so it had the appearance of religion. It had history. It had tradition. And lest you think, well, that doesn't happen today, it does. You have whole movements, Torah-observant Christians, and all of these things which try to do the exact same thing, put you back in the bounds of the slavery that Christ freed you from. It exists today just like it did then. It is amazing the parallel between the first century and the 21st century. We're there all over again. There's nothing new under the sun. And Jesus had tackled this issue when he was approached by the scribes and the Pharisees. You, you know this story. He comes to them and his disciples aren't going through the ritual washings of their hands. And Mark then explains to us in his gospel in chapter 7 um, why all these traditions exist. And then the scribes and Pharisees pose this question to Jesus. They say, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? And you know how this ends. Jesus looks at them and he says, you are hypocrites. You're hypocrites. You think all of this brings you closer to God, but you have lost sight of God's word. He, he says specifically, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men and you teach as doctrines the important things, the commandments of men, not God. You've lost sight. Something we need to take heart of. We're told, we know in 2 Corinthians 13, to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. And I would suggest to you that that is broader than just doing it in your closet. We should be looking at everything we do all the time. As, church, as a church, right? as a congregation, as leaders of ministry, as some of you are out there, we need to persistently ask ourselves, are we moving more and more into conformity with Scripture? Are we doing it God's way? Are we bound up in history? And like I said, history can be good. But we need to be closer, always closer, individually and collectively to God's will as He has revealed it to us. So we always have to ask, does this tradition serve that purpose? Or has it migrated a bit? It may just mean we need to correct it back in. Traditions can be good. But we need to evaluate constantly everything we do. Because we want to please Christ. And just because it was done for years doesn't automatically mean we should keep doing it. Questions are good. We need to ask ourselves these questions all the time and not be defensive. And look, I, I, I'm defensive about what I do. So uh, like this pot calling the kettle black, right? But that's how we're called to live, right? We're told never to make anything an idol. Nothing can be an idol. We can't afford to have sacred cows in our personal lives that nobody can talk to us about because we can't let go. And we can't do it as a church either. We just keep returning always to the Word of God. And traditions, like I said, they can be very good. They can draw us persistently closer to God's Word and build us up. We just have to be very careful because they can also be used to soothe the consciences of people, giving them a false sense of religion and faithfulness when they're not honoring Christ and they're slipping farther away, holding on to these things that they can do. And that is the concern with traditions. Finally, uh, Paul says this false teaching, the deceptive ideas, were according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. Uh, that can actually mean a couple of different things. 
This one's kind of hard. I know a number of you have different uh, Bible translations out there, and it's translated in different ways. This one word that is translated elemental spirits, it may refer to the false teacher's claim to deep spiritual knowledge. They have insights into something spiritual because we see a little bit later that they worshipped angels, right? There, There were these other things being brought in. It can also mean equally as well that they base their knowledge and their spirituality on the natural elements of the world. That they're actually turning towards creation itself, worshiping nature and pulling that back into the church. Whichever way you look at it, it certainly points to one thing, and that is the natural condition of people. Always chasing something that sounds wise and something that sounds spiritual, which, which is foolishness because it's contrary to the word of God, and it ultimately denies Christ's sovereign lordship over all creation. And that runs central. Let me read you another verse that sheds light on this word for us. And remember, as I do this, Scripture interprets Scripture. That is how we keep ourselves from developing weird beliefs and doctrines off of one verse, right? God's word helps us this. In Galatians 4.3, the same term, exact same word, is translated elementary principles, not elemental spirits. And it says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So we did this when we were children, before we were educated on the word of God, before we were learned it and believed it. This was the problem. We needed to be free. And it continues to tell us how we were freed. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It is Christ. It is knowledge of Jesus that delivers us from any of the deceptions of life, whether it is following nature or astrology or angels or praying to saints or bowing to idols, all of these things, knowing Christ, knowing his word is what keeps us away. It is why the Bible over and over and over again just hammers on false teaching in the church usually. They're all over the Bible. You can see them in Deuteronomy 13 and 18. Those are fun to work through. But you see it throughout the New Testament, right? Jude attacks the false teaching. The Apostle Paul warns against false teaching. Jesus warns against false teaching. Peter says it this way in 2 Peter 3. He says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care. Again, you must take action. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Lawless meaning they're not following the word of God, right? This is not... uh, not people who violate the criminal or civil law, though that would be a problem too. He says, instead, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, there it is, the consistent message. The antidote to the poison of false teaching is knowing Jesus Christ. How do you avoid being lured into these things that sound so good, so plausible? Remember a few weeks back, don't be pulled in by plausible arguments. How do you avoid that? You avoid it in one way. Knowing Christ. Knowing the fullness of Christ. And that is why Paul flips now here from the warning to the promise. To pointing to Jesus. Saying he is ultimately sufficient for all things. You need know nothing else except for Jesus. He is supreme. In verse 9, he lays out the foundation of the Christian faith and hope. He says, for in him the whole fullness of deity 
dwells bodily. In Jesus Christ, and in Christ alone, is found all that there is to know and experience about God. And of course, how do you know Jesus? You only know Jesus through His Word. The Bible, Genesis to Revelation. John opens his gospel, speaking gloriously about the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Word, and says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He has always been God. And J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, puts this amazing truth of the Incarnation this way. The Word had become flesh, a real human baby. He had not ceased to be God. He was no less God then than before, but He had begun to be man. He was not now God minus some elements of His deity, but God plus all that He had made His own by taking manhood to Himself. Is nothing more than a restatement of Philippians 2 that says Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to. But he instead, he emptied himself. How? By giving anything up? No. He emptied himself by taking on something. By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, when we read this statement in verse 9, There's almost no more profound statement about Jesus that is made that the whole fullness of deity, every attribute of the triune God, dwells bodily in Him. And yet it's fascinating because this will generally get kind of a ho-hum response from Christians. Like, yeah, yeah, I know that. Jesus, He's a God-man. Tell me something I don't know. And yet... We see in the State of Theology report that 43% actually deny this truth. And it's growing. The biblical proofs of the divinity of Jesus Christ, they're overwhelming. And you have to understand it is a foundational element of what we believe. And that if you deny his divinity, you are unsaved. You can only be saved by the God-man. You're outside the kingdom of God. You You might be a religious person, but you are destined for hell, not for heaven. You see this at the very earliest phases of the church. We see it in the Bible, of course, but even in the first century, the earliest recorded sermon that we have is by Clement of Rome. And he is preaching this sermon to the church in Corinth. And he says, Brethren, we ought so to believe of Jesus Christ as God, as the judge of the living and the dead. This has existed from the start. It is foundational. If Jesus is not God, then we who claim to believe in Him in this life are most to be pitied, right? There's no salvation for us. There's no salvation for mankind. All have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. It is only through the God-man, through Jesus Christ, that we receive the grace of God through faith. John Calvin beautifully marvels at this fact, and I can't say it any better, and it is something to dwell on. He says... The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, He willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth, and to hang upon the cross. Yet He continuously filled the world, even as He had done from the beginning. 
It's amazing and it's true, but it's hard for us to get our head around because we work in life off experience and examples. And there is no person and there's no thing that we can point to and go, yeah, Jesus, the eternal son taking on a human nature is like that guy over there, right? He's also God and man. We have nothing to compare it to, but he is eternal. Colossians 1.17 says, in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power and that did not end while Jesus walked the earth for 33 or so years. The divine nature of the Son never became less divine. Say the fullness of God dwelled in the man, Christ Jesus, is to say that God in all of his attributes, in all of his perfections, in all of his power and glory took on a human nature and lived among us. What a great humility. The second person of the triune God who knew all that could be known humbled himself in Jesus to learn all that could be learned. Luke says it this way, he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man as he grew. An amazing thing. It should amaze us constantly that the triune God, our creator, came down to our level and revealed himself to us in the perfection of Jesus Christ so that we could know him. That the very radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature would walk among His creation. That He would live with human limitations, getting tired, getting hungry in that human nature. So that as Hebrews 4 tells us, He could sympathize with our weaknesses. But even though He was tempted in every respect, just as we are, He would never sin. Which is why he can be our substitute. God made the perfect son in the flesh who knew no sin bear the weight of our sin on the cross so that in him we might become the righteousness of God and stand in judgment and enter heaven's gate. And the Bible tells us there is but one God. One God. 1 Timothy 2.5 There is but one God and only one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. Now I admit, I've always kind of struggled to use that, that verse because the problem is people's belief in the divinity of Jesus. And if that causes you to stumble a little bit, the man, Christ Jesus, I would tell you, turn back to where we're at. What does it say about the man, Christ Jesus? It says, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Pay attention to the tense of that verb, if you will. Not dwelled, not entered for a moment. Dwells, ongoing, permanently. The human nature taken upon himself at conception will be kept by the Son for all eternity. This is how we will join Him, how we will see God, how we will relate to God. Jesus did not give up His deity at incarnation, and He does not relinquish His humanity at the resurrection. It's a powerful truth. It is one that we can ponder on for a lifetime and probably not wrap our heads around. The grace and the mercy and the love of God is so vast that it is truly difficult to grasp. But you can't even begin to know it unless you know Jesus Christ. And that is why those without faith in Jesus who do not know Him fall easy prey to deceit and false teaching because it is those who have little who are always searching for more, a better thing. It's not the person with his belly full of rich food that we find in the alleyways pouring through dumpsters looking for day-old bread. No, it is the empty man, the hungry man, 
And so there is a second half of this promise. For those who have looked upon the glory of Jesus Christ, who have repented of sin and believed in Christ, believed that He lived perfectly, that He died on the cross in substitution for their sins, that He rose from the grave, that He ascended to heaven above. For these true believers, we're not only looking to the God-man in whom the fullness of deity dwells, we are filled in Him, the text tells us. So that is our final point, the wholeness of Christ, or wholeness that we have in Christ. Colossians 2.10, and you have been filled in him who is at the head of all rule and authority. How do you answer that question if you ask yourself, are you filled in Christ? What does it mean? What does that even mean? We have to look at the word first, filled is in the perfect tense. It's not a tense that we have in English, and it means that one action in the past that is done, that is complete, that is unrepeatable, has ongoing present consequences every single minute of every single day. That is what it means to be filled in Christ. It is a one-time event that has ongoing relevance to your whole life. Every situation, every circumstance, your thoughts, your words, your deeds, your everything that you do. You have to take a step back as a result of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, their sin. Sin came into the world and through sin, death to all people. Romans 5.12, right? We're all born in sin. David would say in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You can't escape it. You're born that way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. That's where we start. But Jesus bore the sin of all repentant sinners on that cross. And he suffered the wrath of God that we deserve in our place. And so when you repent of sin and turn from it and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing that he is Lord of your life, following him, you have been justified. That's a term we'll take up next week. You've been justified. You've been forgiven. The Bible says you've been adopted as a child of God. You have been filled in Christ at that moment. At salvation, true believers, Second Peter tells us, become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Oh, you'll fight it every day, but you are not a slave to it. You are in Christ. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That happens instantly, immediately. Some people wonder, have I been baptized by the Holy Spirit? All believers have. We're all baptized into one faith. Romans tells us that. And you are full, you are complete, because you have fellowship with God through Jesus the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling you. You are full in Christ because you turn to Scripture and you recognize the authority of God's revealed will in every God-breathed word from Genesis to Revelation. And it is through Christ in His Word that you have ultimate meaning as an image-bearer of God. And the one who fills you, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit, it is He who is the head of all rule and authority. What a wonderful thing. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. The one who fills you is subject to no person, no authority, no nation, no king, no ruler, no philosophy, no ideology. He is the ruler of all things. And He fills and He completes all believers. If you are full of Christ, if you are full of His truth, the Holy Scriptures, you're not subject to any power or person or being, whether it's physical or spiritual. If you are full of truth, you can't be misled by a lie. It is in Christ that the whole fullness of deity dwells. And you're filled in Him. What a wonderful promise. Our driving motivation in life should all stem from our love of God and our love for each other. The desire that everybody would truly know Jesus. That they would increase in their knowledge of Christ. That they would have their lives ever conformed to His image. That, that is our desire. That is what we do. Blend with this. Joshua. Going back to the Old Testament. Joshua 24. Joshua speaking to the Israelites. Standing in the promised land. Had received all the law of God. Had given the, 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 the warnings of curses. The promise of blessing. And he says this to them. His dying words. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. Our call. Fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. And then he says this powerful thing. Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose this day, right now, whom you will serve every minute of every day of your life. And there is no middle ground. There's no neutral position. Some will say, well, yeah, I kind of believe in the facts, but I'm not quite ready. I'll choose tomorrow. Let me just tell you, that is you or you know somebody in that boat, they chose. They actually chose, this day I will not follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You choose. There is no neutrality. And we must all choose this day whom we will serve. It's always a choice. Only the fool declares there is no God, says the psalmist. Only the foolish will look upon the gospel that is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. And say, not for me. Moses said, choose life. Choose life. Choose to live in and through and for Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. And then let us pray for our own souls and for those that we know and love. That if they have been exposed to the good news of Jesus Christ, that they would not be led astray. That they wouldn't fall prey to these promises of more power, higher spirituality, secularism. That instead they will grasp and hold on to the perfect, complete, sufficient, supreme Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul had told us we need to seek to grow in wisdom and understanding. Such that we are overflowing with Christ in His goodness. That when we speak it, our lives reflect it. And you see, your belief in Christ and being filled in Him, that is the only recipe for a fulfilling life. Everything else is temporary. That is also the only one that guards your eternal soul from error and falsehood and fear that ultimately drives so many people. Trust in Jesus. Live by His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your Word always humbles us. In fact, Lord, we've 
pray today that you would strip away any vestige of pride that we might be holding on to, that we might truly come on our knees, receiving Christ like a child, humble, believing, trusting, knowing that it is your grace provided to us freely, without merit, saves us, Lord. We don't deserve it, but we are so grateful for it. Lord, we pray that as painful as it might be at times, that you would continue to conform us to the image of our Lord and Savior. You would use the people around us in our church family. We would love like Christ loved, sacrificially and intentionally, but always seeking your glory, your honor. Always with the thought that I must decrease so that Christ increases and is exalted and praised and seen and known and heard of by all people. Lord, we pray that you would give us boldness in our own walk, that we would have our lives changed and conformed to you, that we would proudly and faithfully speak the truth to all people. We would keep our head held high, even in rejection, knowing that it is not us they reject, but our Lord. God, please place in our hearts a deep grief, a deep sense of compassion for those who are lost in sin, such that we would reach them with the love of Christ, bring to them the, the only promise that can give life. Lord, guide us as we go into the world this week. Help us to know you deeper and to live lives worthy and pleasing of our Lord Jesus. In whose name we pray.